This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Now, one of Victoria's most significant and also rather beautiful uh, galleries is the Tarawara Museum of Art out uh, just near Healesville in the Yarra Valley. So beautiful surroundings and uh, beautiful work presented there. Uh, On now until the 5th of February is the exhibition The Sculpture of Bronwyn Oliver, curated by Julie Ewington, who is... Just joining me in the studio, Julie, good morning. Good morning, Richard. So, Bronwyn Oliver uh, uh, passed away a few years ago. Yes, it's 10 years since she she died. It was an untimely death, early death, in her 40s. And really, this is the time to look at the work again. So, a survey exhibition, 52 works from pretty much the beginning of her exhibiting career, 1984, the last works, 2006. And this is... This is to look again at the achievement, and the achievement is, we think, terrific. Extraordinary, beautiful sculptures, but particular vision, I think, of the way we think about the natural world, which, to my mind, is a very distinctive contribution to Australian art. Very, very distinctive. There's a beautiful, organic um, sensibility to so much of her sculpture, the, the, some of the images I've seen, despite the fact that she's working with hard substances. She's crafting them in a way to create curves and, and fluid lines. There really is a sense of the organic about the, the, the work that she created. That's the conundrum, because um, many of them have a... Many of the forms are spiralling, twisting, turning, and sometimes the, um, the actual titles suggest natural forms. The most explicit, I guess, would be the ones that refer to flowers like rose or grandiflora for magnolia or sakura for cherry blossom or lily. But there are others that are just kind of full of energy of a more of a more general kind. And I think that's right. The as a young woman, she absolutely resisted the idea that she was drawing from nature. She said, no, no, no. She was very feisty. No, no, no. It's all about form and it's all about structure. And I think maybe as a young woman and a feminist, she didn't want to be put in that particular stereotypical basket, you know, that sort of late 80s, early 90s moment where the women were doing environmentally sound work, you know, rescuing the planet again. So that 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 was a resistance. But Really, there's this sort of analogical structures, I think, which recall energy and growth. And I think you put your finger on it because even though they're metal and they're pretty much rigid, pretty much, we were very careful with the ones that are floppier, even though they're pretty much rigid, they do bundle up in themselves this sense of coiling growth and energy often very very often so something there's the form and the structure but there's the energy and the action that's implied by it and the fact that this is in rigid metal makes it quite miraculous. She started out working in much uh, softer, more flexible materials, didn't she, in paper for example early in her career? The earliest exhibited works were in paper she she didn't Yes, that's right. Paper reinforced by um, papier-mâché, actually, and cane. So there's a group of those early works, and they're extremely lovely. But she really hit her stride when she moved to metal wire in about 1987, something like that. 
And from then on, she worked exclusively in metal, mostly in copper wire, with different kinds of patinations. And she returned constantly to certain sorts of forms in metal. So there are long vertical tail-like things. There are spirals. Uh, there are works she called labyrinth. There are discs. There are wrapped forms, which I call them wrapped and riveted. They're kind of like... I'm, t- I'm making a gesture here in the studio. I'm clutching myself. So it's they're like tightly constrained chest a sense of them folding in on themselves tension tension and there's one called heart from 1988 which she said was one of her all-time favorites it's the only one that really feels like a body to me it feels like a tight chest and it's almost the size of a torso so different kinds of treatments in recurring Forms And what I've tried to do in the show is to, to demonstrate exactly how varied and ongoing and exploratory the practice was. Julie, when did you first encounter Bronwyn Oliver's sculptural work and what was it that initially intrigued you by them? Oh, I, can, I, I think I know to the minute. I think it was in late 1993 when she was one of the Australian artists in the first Asia-Pacific Triennial in Queensland Art Gallery. And that work, one, two of those works are in this exhibition and one of them, Curly Q, in the Queensland Art Gallery collection, I know very well because I looked after it for 17 years when I was the curator in that in that area. So I, I saw a number of lovely works. I think they're both four or five from memory. And from then on, I was very interested in her work and followed it. And whenever I would come to Sydney during the number of years I lived in Brisbane, I would always see her shows at Rosalind Oxley Nine, which was her long-time Sydney gallerist. And the long-time Melbourne gallerist was Christine Abrams' gallery in here in Melbourne. So um, I, I always watched it because... Not so many people were doing sculpture, you know. That generation there, there went to... There was a movement away from, kind of, from sculpture towards video art or, or conceptual work or... Exactly. Yeah. All sorts of ephemeral practices, performance, installation. I think she did one performance when she was in a student workshop with Marina Abramovich, rather a good one. But really sculpture was her thing. And I think perhaps... All of us professionals and the public have come back to embrace sculpture and to think about it in in a less resistant way and to welcome the kinds of innovations that sculpture, sculptors like Oliver actually made. So our ideas about what might be sculpture are really very broad-ranging. But hers, I think, was one of the most passionate and directed practices over that period and what she left behind is extraordinary. Now, if you've just tuned in, we're speaking about the exhibition The Sculpture of Bronwyn Oliver, which is on at Tarawara Museum of Art in the Yarra Valley until the 5th of February. It's curated by Julie Ewington, who's my guest at the moment. Now, I'm given the scale of some of... Uh, the, of Oliver's sculptures, I'm imagining that this is an exhibition which uh, is both within the Tarawara Gallery uh, Museum, but also outside. Well, as much as I could, we have a very large sculpture, which is about two and a half metres in dimension, uh, called Two Rings. And that's the... There are several... Several sculpt- versions of that, aren't there? Mm, there's a tiny little maquette version. Okay. But Two Rings is situated outside and then there's a very, very large, about a three and a half, four metre long spiral. And those are down the beautiful long Vista Walk, which is the 
the room that looks out to the landscape. So down there, I've got a couple of really big works, one of which is outside, and a number of maquettes, and there's um, an audiovisual script about her work in public sculpture. So yes, she did really important work in the public domain, and people can see that, not so much in Melbourne, actually, but in Adelaide and in Sydney in the Botanic Gardens, right down by the harbour, and in Orange and various places. So very important work as a public sculptor very successful work indeed now she passed away 10 years ago and uh, she was only 47 if she was still working today what do you think her, her practice would have embraced and how would it have grown damned if i know and that's the thing about uh, an artist like that. I, I imagine she would have kept on working with metal but when she died she was at the top of her game absolutely no question so i imagine that she would have persisted with what had become her core. And I think her core is to find ways to think through our experience of natural forms and the world in a way that actually makes a contribution that I, I'm going to set aside someone alongside someone like Fred Williams. Now, I know that seems a bit counterintuitive, but... Fred Williams and Sidney Nolan and a few other folk did help us to see the natural world in Australia in a different way. And there's something about the intensity and the meditative aspect that I now see in her work that makes me think that this woman who went on bushwalks and was fascinated by the seashore and the things that washed up along it would have continued to show us how to see the world through the forms that she made. I think as a more mature artist, she was no longer quite so resistant to being associated with the natural world. And the last, very last work she made is a beautiful thing. It's a bit like a rose window or lace. It's about a metre wide, a thing called rose. And these things make one think about the ephemeral perfection of the world outside. They really do. I love the the idea that something solid and metal and lasting can remind us of the ephemeral, can evoke uh, uh, fragility despite the solidity of the work. And make us think about those things, make us think about how perfect is a rose or a lily or um, a pine cone or an egg or some... or. A sea anemone. There's a fabulous thing called anthozoa, which is a big globe more than a metre in diameter. And against the lovely light coming in through the windows from the Yarra Valley, it practically dissolves like sea foam in the, in the light coming in. It dazzles. So I think, yes, there's, there's something that keep, will keep... There's something that will keep us coming back to her work. The sculpture of Bronwyn Oliver is on now at Tarawara Museum of Art until the 5th of February. Uh, the, the museum is uh, located at 311 Healesville, Yarra Glen Road, in, just outside of Healesville. Uh, you can find out more information, including opening hours, at www.twma.com.au. I've been talking to the exhibition curator, Julie Ewington. Julie, thanks for coming in. Thank you, Richard. Thank you very much. This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. I'm joined by Brett Shee, the Artistic Director of the Melbourne Theatre Company, uh, who launched their 2017 season a 
little while ago now, but uh, you have been a busy man. So, uh, yeah. And you have been so patient, Richard. Thank you so much. Uh, my pleasure. Um, I wanted yeah. to, because I wanted to get you into chat, because it's, uh, um, Melbourne Theatre Company is a significant part of the theatrical landscape in Melbourne. So it, <laughs> I didn't want to just gloss over the fact that you have a, a whole new year coming up. Oh, you're a good man. Thank in, you. It's in, good to be here. Including a bunch of new plays, which yes. every new play is a risk for the company. Yeah. Uh, because you don't quite know if it's going to work, whether people will gravitate to it. And you've got four new plays next year, all new Australian works. Yeah, we do. You know, you know we're kind of in a really privileged position in Melbourne, and, and we've done the, the, the numbers over the past couple of decades. Melbourne audiences love Australian stories. And when I compare our stats with the other state theatre companies, I can say, because I've, I've done it, um, done the comparison, uh, Melbourne audiences love Australian stories at their state theatre company more than in any other city, which is an incredible thing. Um, in Sydney, it's much more weighted towards the classics. So even though there's, there's massive risk in putting a new Australian play on stage, world premiere, etc., um, you do do it with the knowledge that there is an audience in this city hungry for those new stories. Why do you think Melbournians are so drawn to Australian stories? Yeah, look, I have no idea. I'm, I mean, I know that when I go back through MTC's history, I know that MTC has, has always, you know, um, really foregrounded Australian stories going back as far as the doll. And, and I think that the importance of the Australian canon to this company and indeed to this city is, is really really palpable and um, that's all I can put it down to but um, it you know pleases me enormously yeah um, let's talk about those new works yes uh, which include a new play by Joanna Murray-Smith which yes. I'm presuming is not as risky perhaps as some of the others because Joanna is such a uh, an established and much admired and playwright and the subscribers definitely seem to like her work both here and in other cities so yeah look look very true what what Joanna does do though wonderfully I think is take her writing in new directions pretty well every time uh, a play comes from her and I think Switzerland was a prime example Example of that. Uh, this new play of hers, Three Little Words, is about essentially two couples. Uh, one couple is dissolving their relationship and the impact that that has on their best friends who are the other couple. And it, it's a wonderful work because it really looks at um, all of the contemporary issues around family, around relationships, around parenthood, about what constitutes family. It's, it's beautifully wrought. Um, it's, it's very funny, as Joanna's writing often is, but, but yeah, anchored in this, this deeply personal analysis of what it means to be either alone or in a relationship in this 21st century where um, famously, no matter how many people we're surrounded by, we can still feel incredibly alone. And um, the, the, the two couples who are involved, there's a uh, couple of two women who are in a relationship together and a couple of a man and a woman who are in a relationship together. The four of them have been best friends for 20-something years and the man and woman, that relationship is the one that fractures and, and breaks apart. And it's, it's wonderfully, wonderfully told, I think, um, what this does to the whole relationship of the four people. And, and it's also important, I think, for us to, to be aware of the impact what we do in our lives, the ripple effect and the repercussions it has, um, not only on our immediate family, but about all of those around us and the wider family. So that is Joanna's new work. There's also a new work by one of my favourite Australian playwrights, uh, and I should declare that she's a friend as well, Lally Katz, uh, Minnie and Laraz, which is... It, 
I'm intrigued by Lally's trajectory as a playwright. She started out doing the most beautifully surreal and off-the-charts off the strange drama. Yes. And she's become slowly more grounded in, in everyday life instead of these huge flights of fancy. So Minnie and Larez, am I right in thinking this is about a card game? Or <laughs> um, playing bridge is one of the central motifs of, of it. Um, there are two wonderful women, Minnie and Larez, who are in a retirement home together and um, Bridge is, is the game of choice amongst these residents of this retirement village and it, it's a beautiful Melbourne story actually. The retirement village is in Caulfield in Melbourne and um, all of the characters on stage are beautifully drawn Melburnians and look, what, what Lally does with her writing, even though perhaps this work is anchored a little bit more in um, a narrative which is more identifiable to all of us in the audience. Uh, there is a twist at the end which is so unbelievable and so astonishing. Um, the audience will be gasping, literally, uh, when, when this twist happens. But but one of the beautiful things about it is not only looking at, at, at these two extraordinary characters, these elderly women, but also the next generation down where the grandson of one and the granddaughter of another of the woman, women are both alone in the world. We were talking about loneliness before and um, looking for love. They're both in their mid-30s. Uh, they're very unlikely companions for each other but throughout the course of the play slowly this relationship develops between them and um, the result as I said is surprising in many ways and on many levels but but Lally is is an extraordinary writer I, 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 I call her the incomparable Lally Katz and um, you know one of one of the great writers of Australia now and for the future and to have a new play from her is just a gift. Yeah, look I've been watching Lally's work and seeing it since um, I think a Stedford was the the first play yeah. of hers I saw, uh, uh, fo- soon followed by the Black Swan of Trespass, and yeah, she's yes. just got such a remarkable voice. So, yeah. yeah. Now, uh, one of the other works that I'm intrigued to see, another new play in the MTC uh, 2017, is not part of the subscription season, correct? But it's a new Australian play uh, that is your education. Uh, kind of production for yes. the year. Uh, Melbourne, tell, um, tell us a little bit about this and what, what is the education season? What is the What does this program entail? Yeah, look, look each year we program a work which is a full Melbourne Theatre Company production, uh, specifically a work which, which has themes and um, ideas which resonate importantly for young people. And we work with the people writing the syllabus each year and look at the possibility of, of what a play might do in, in terms of what's being studied in the syllabus. And Rashma Kelsey, um, who is a terrific writer, uh, she came through uh, various programs of ours. We have this MTC Connect program with Multicultural Arts Victoria uh, where we identify a number of called culturally and linguistically diverse artists uh, to become ambassadors for the company essentially. And uh, Rashma uh, was in that program. She then had uh, this play of hers, Melbourne Talam, 
uh, put through the CYBIC, our play reading process, where we develop the work and do public readings of works. And then it was programmed uh, for the education program. I love it. it. It's about three Indian Australians, three young Indian Australians, who are really trying to make sense of living in this city of Melbourne and navigating the city of Melbourne with, with um, everything the past has given them and all of the tools their own past have given them to navigate life in the 21st century. Uh, but they're doing that in a city which is, in the in immediate sense, quite foreign to them and culturally quite foreign to them as well. So it's it's a beautiful play. It's obviously not just for students. Um, I've actually had several um, of our, our patrons and audience members over the past couple of months say it's one of the plays they're most looking forward to in next year's season. And I have to say, I feel the same about it. Well, certainly, I think it was peddling with the education uh, production this year, which yes. I was utterly enthralled and captivated by. So, uh, uh, certainly looking forward to 2017's production. Uh, the, the last new Australian play, uh, Eddie Perfect's Vivid White. Yeah, Vivid White, which is um, a kind of paint. And this is a play which um, really skewers uh, the 30-something generation... <clears throat> who are determined to break into the real estate market and how uh, property is everything. And uh, I won't tell you what is happening as a background to this piece, but to use the word the apocalypse is not an overstatement. Um, And it's not ISIS and it's not climate change and it's not a nuclear war, but an apocalyptic event is happening to planet Earth. And really... Um, that is all blocked out uh, for the goal of getting the property and winning at auction. So while all of this is happening in the background, uh, these two couples, it's, it's almost like a fight to the death to see who can outbid the other couple to get their dream home. And one couple wins and one couple loses. But, you know, Ed has the most brilliant facility for skewering um, that that part of society, especially I think the 30-something people who are moving into a kind of bourgeois comfortability and um, Ed just loves pulling the rug out from under them. It also has original Eddie Perfect songs throughout, so there will be a musical element. It's tremendously funny, incredibly dark humour and uh, yeah, I think Ed's an absolute national treasure and Vivid White um, which which comes out of the play when they're deciding what colour they should paint one of the rooms in the house, uh, I think beautifully skewers the, the youngish middle class. Now, previous seasons, uh, there have been works uh, programmed in previous seasons of the MTC that are clearly, and you've told me this uh, yourself, have been designed to uh, appeal to a younger audience outside the main subscriber audience yes. of the MTC. So in 2015, for example, we had Birdland and What Rhymes With Cars and Girls, which has yes. just been, a, speaking of which, has just had a, a new season announced, uh, uh, National Theatre of Parramatta, I believe. Uh, 2016, we had things like Straight White Men, uh, which have also served that purpose, earlier years, Constellation, Cox, yes. and so forth. For season in 2017, it, it looks to me like a more conservative season. I can't see those kind of younger, edgier works in the season. Where are they? Yeah, look, look I think that audience will gravitate um, to Ed's play. Um, I think your observation is correct. I think this 
program less obviously has work aimed at that generation. But I also feel that um, that generation is starting to move into the company proper. And when we look at our statistics, um, our subscriptions are up 10% this year. Um, they're tracking the same for next year. So that's literally thousands more Melburnians who are joining the MTC family and are coming to see the whole suite of works, not just cherry picking a work here and there. And those younger audiences are actually moving into that demographic. And I suppose, um, I mean, I was aware of it in putting the program together. Um, I do have to just assess each play play by play um, without wanting to bore you with statistics anything we program in the main season has to play to a minimum of 14,000 people in the Fairfax um, and anything up to around about 30,000 people in the Playhouse so really that's the judgement call I need to make with the work in front of me Um, can at least 14,000 Melburnians be guaranteed to come to this or things start to unravel. Um, so, so, look, I suppose in putting the program together this time, I did look through it and I thought, okay, for those younger audiences, what will they get from it? And what they'll get from it, I think, is an incredible um, cross-section, not only of new writing from Australia and around the world, but also some astonishing performances. I think we have more legendary actors, for want of a better phrase, on stage in 2017 than ever before. And for young younger audiences to see that and appreciate that will be a marvellous thing. I mean, to have John Bell on stage in his first contemporary role in 26 years will be extraordinary, and that's in The Father. Um, we have Helen Morse on stage, Julia Blake, Nancy Hayes, Colin Frills. It goes on and on and on. So I think that that's one thing. The other thing is there, there is a shift, and I think it's very apparent in the newer works in this season, there is a shift towards a a deeper examination of character by writers. And I'm finding this a lot more in the international work where we're really spending time in a room, i.e. the auditorium, with extraordinary people and having those characters beautifully drawn and beautifully wrought uh, by the playwright. That's happening more and more, and it's incredibly apparent, I think, in in this year's season as well. So for all of those reasons, I think even though, yes, less obviously are there works for, say, a 25 or 30-year-old, if they do come to see the work next year, I think they'll see something extraordinary and fresh and new for them, even if it's not particularly targeting them. Will people of colour see themselves reflected on stage in the MTC next year? Because there has been criticism. I've written about this and uh, we've acknowledged this in the past that the brochure, certainly the, the subscription season brochure and video, is very white. Yeah, there, there are definitely people of colour on stage next year. Um, we don't have a number yet. We still have 20 whole roles to cast. And I suppose I, I felt that, you know, um, if people could just wait a minute um, and see what the full lineup will be. I mean, I think at the moment we have something like, you know, um, close to a dozen people of colour on stage. Um, that's obviously building. Uh, we've still got, as I said, 20 roles to cast. I think, though, I mean, there have been people of colour um, on MTC stages for a long time, certainly every single year um, that I've had the opportunity to put a program on stage. I think the the important story here as well, though, is um, the stories on stage that have been told. And I, I say this with complete honesty. Um, there were two works 
from people of colour uh, in this year's program. There is only one Rashmas next year's program. And I think we need to address this just as seriously and successfully as we address the issue of women directors, uh, which we've kind of knocked out of the water for all time, with seven of next year's plays being directed by women and five by men. And we are we have designed a program for new writing. Um, we're raising money for it at the moment. Uh, I can't tell you too much about it. It will see a vast increase in the number of commissions uh, with writers of diversity and also a number of writers embedded in the company. Uh, that's being developed at the moment. We hope to launch that sometime in 2017. Of course, it will reap its benefits down the track in terms of new writing. But, but I do see this as, as, you know, something that MTC can address from the grassroots upwards, and it's something that I'm on a mission to succeed in. I look forward to that announcement and to uh, also tomorrow's announcement, which you mentioned to me off-air just before we began chatting, that uh, you are doing a production of Macbeth next year. Uh, your, the lead role for that will be announced tomorrow morning. So I know, and I'm sorry, I can't, I cannot breach. No uh, hints? I can't give you a single thing. It's a male. Um, oh, well, that's fairly traditional. Um, <laughs> um, traditional, but not necessarily <laughs> always the case. Um, but, yeah, look, that, that is being announced tomorrow morning. I think people will be very excited by that. And also, if I can just say, you know, on Monday, we announced the full program for our Cybic Electric um, series next year where we're going to feature the writing of nine Asian-Australian writers. Um, we'll be doing full readings and partial readings of those works uh, with half of the works being directed by a Malaysian director we're bringing here and half of the works being directed by a Chinese director who we're bringing down to Melbourne, which is the reason why we had to postpone one of these interviews because I was in China uh, working with some people up there to identify which director would come and work on these Asian-Australian plays. Um, So, look, in terms of diversity, we're totally on the case. Um, Great things will flow over the coming years and um, we'll announce that full program on Monday. But, yes, Macbeth, first thing tomorrow morning, Australia will know. I will keep my eyes open. Uh, Season 2017 tickets for MTC subscribers are on sale now. Uh, You can go to mtc.com.au for more information and then individual tickets for shows will go on sale. Uh, I think they're staggered through three different... Yeah, but but the website says when. Okay, so mtc.com.au. Go there for more details. Brett Shee, always a pleasure to catch up. Thank you, Richard. This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. The uh, endless procession of talent continues on the show today. It's a busy morning, but I'm really enjoying the variety of work that we're talking about. And given that we were just talking about open studios in the West, let's continue further to the West over to Geelong and uh, talk about an exhibition that's on at Geelong Gallery, uh, opening on the 26th of November, running through until the 12th of February, called Tricking the Eye, Contemporary Trump Lawyer, Curator Lisa Sullivan and Artists. Chris Bond and Tully Moore join us in the studio. Lisa, what is Trompe l'oeil? Well, that's a great question, and this is a great geographical segue that you've just proposed coming across to the West. But Trompe l'oeil, uh, Trompe l'oeil painting, is a tradition of painting or a genre of painting, uh, usually two-dimensional painting in which the artist has, has strived to make the appearance of the 2D surface look three-dimensional. That's that's the definition of trompe l'oeil at its, its, its most basic, I guess. And indeed, the translation uh, translates to, or trick of the... 
trompe l'oeil translates to trick of the eye. So it's all about tricking the eye to perceive that the two-dimensional surface of the canvas is actually a three-dimensional object protruding from the canvas. And the way that I would perhaps be most familiar with this style of work might be, uh, I don't know, a fresco, for example, uh, on the wall of a, uh, a French uh, palace or something, which looks like a vista opening out onto a garden but is in fact just an alcove that's been cleverly painted. That's absolutely right. And indeed the traditions of trompe l'oeil date back centuries, um, goes back to indeed recorded stories of 400 BC where um, a painting of grapes was was created and a bird went to peck them and then um, in response to that another artist painted a, a, a painting of a curtain which deceived the first artist of the grapes uh, and so it set up this immediate establishment of competition between the artists to deceive the eye but it really reached its, its height probably in the 16th and 17th century when a lot of Dutch painters were painting still life paintings, also frescoes of you as you've mentioned, headed through to the 19th and 20th centuries. And if we think of artists like René Magritte, one of the surrealists, or indeed Andy Warhol, for example, all of those artists have been using trompe l'oeil elements in their works. Um, but we see it very much in the contemporary realm, exactly as you said, in a, in a cafe. Um, we also see it uh, in advertising. For example, there's a fantastic Honda advertisement that um, employs trompe l'oeil techniques. And people even use it in film as well. So there's... Um, um, lots of films that have used trompe l'oeil and indeed when we think very much of trompe l'oeil in the 21st century I'd perhaps argue that virtual reality is very much a 21st century application of trompe l'oeil. We're looking at a flat surface but indeed we're taken into a third dimensional realm. Mm-hmm. Now you mentioned that competitive element of uh, that uh, of those earlier artists and uh, Tully and Chris are you guys competing with one another in some way or uh, just happily uh, watching one another create work and admiring one another's work? Um, yeah, I'm not sure if we're competing um, at all, but uh, we kind of exist in, in separate realms, I suppose, um, with different uh, media. A lot of the artists in the show are working with sculpture, for example, or with, um, with new media or um, painting, as Tully and I do. Um, so I'm not sure that we're competing, um, but there probably is a level of um, one-upmanship in terms of um, trying to get um, the viewer involved in the illusion in different ways. Yeah. Um, Tully, would it be fair to say that rather than competing, you're perhaps collaborating? Yeah, that's right. Um, myself and Colleen O'Hearn uh, kind of got at this ongoing collaborative process where we kind of used trompe l'oeil previously. So in a previous show, we um, painted uh, old um, Colleen's old clapped-out Holden Astor entirely faux timber. So we're kind of coming from it from the approach of, you know, the commercial application um, of trompe l'oeil. So... You know, through kind of the storyboards of like a 17th century American painter, William Hartnett, which, you know, was kind of a huge, um, I guess, popularity from the general public, was but was completely kind of poo-pooed by the establishment as kind of, you know, that trompe l'oeil's cheap monkey tricks kind of um, painting for the masses. Um, and then kind of adapting that into, I guess, a more contemporary history of, you know, the mural that you might see kind of, you know, as a, uh, as a stage backdrop or um, in a cafe or um, in, in those kind of realms. So the plausibility, I guess, of trompe l'oeil in that kind of fine art realm as well as kind of that public sphere. What's the attraction uh, for the two of you and for some of the other artists in the exhibition in tricking the eye, in creating that kind of the illusion of depth to a work, for example? 
Um, I think for me it's about the allure of fiction. Um, I use um, not just trompe l'oeil uh, methods in my painting practice but also uh, take on pseudonyms. I perform as different characters and my, you know, my art life is, is predominantly fictional um, and about simulation and it's been that way for a long time. So I think I just naturally fall into, into trompe l'oeil. And I guess um, with this particular work that me and Colleen are working on, um, we're both kind of working around the idea of kind of deceit and deception. Um, so our work is kind of about, you know, loosely based around the kind of closure of, you know, the, the Ford factory, so the industrial past. Um, both Colleen and I are from kind of rural New South Wales town that uh, um, New South Wales towns that have that industrial past that are also going through that similar kind of, you know, Restructure, I guess, of that town. And I guess we were thinking of, you know, the, the kind of deception within the debate over the past 10 years of that kind of, you know, that flux of, you know, an industry like that as well. Mm-hmm. So I think, yeah, with the, the, the content of the work also kind of marrying with the form or the formal qualities of the work. And Lisa, tell us about some of the other artists involved in the exhibition and what they're playing with. And yeah, they are literally playing with in They are, ways, yeah. and I, I have to say, it's a, I think it's a fun exhibition and I was really interested in bringing together an exhibition that, that, that was a lot of fun and there's wit and humour within the show. So we have a total of 12 artists, so we have... Tully and Chris and Colleen, of course, who have been mentioned. Um, the premise uh, starts very much with all the origins or the, the works that have been brought together are very painting-based, um, logically, because trompe painting is a painting-based um, genre. Um, but I've also been quite playful and stretched the boundaries of trompe as well. So we have um, painting on the wall, as Tully's mentioned, uh, that he and Colleen have completed. We also have painters who are working with stretch canvases, the traditional um, format. Uh, we have painters who are working on three-dimensional forms, in this case Stephen Bowers who's working on painted ceramic forms. Um, or Chris, for example, who's wait- working on canvas but he turns that canvas into a three-dimensional form in the form of a, a, a magazine that he has painted and, and replicates uh, in a mirror image. Um, and then I've also pushed the idea of trompe l'oeil, so really going back to the origins or translation, tricking the eye, push that into the sculptural realm as well. So we have sculptures by Ricky Swallow in which he's cast beautiful bronze magnifying glasses under which everyday objects, a rope or a pipe are placed. And of course, he creates this optical illusion, this sort of fun illusion whereby it looks as though that object is magnified under what would be the lens of the magnifying glass. But, of course, there isn't a lens. There is no lens, So there's a lovely sort of gotcha moment with his works. And then we also have some sculptural installations by a young artist, Georgina Q, who works in embroidery or textiles to create um, quite extraordinary large sculptures, one of which, for example, Lightworks, is a, a beautiful window... Uh, that uh, she's installed on the wall and then in in the foreground there's a wonderful carpet that she's embroidered and on that carpet she's given the illusion that the light source is coming through the window but of course once we register we realise that there is no possible light source coming through. And then pushing that a little bit further as well I've included works by Anza Helker. Uh, She's taken photographs, she's a very well-known Australian artist uh, and she's taken photographs of the very well-known dioramas at the Natural History Museum in New York, which, of course, have trompe l'oeil painted backgrounds. Uh, So she's taken photographs of these dioramas that have the the trompe l'oeil painted backgrounds, the animals and plant specimens in them, and then she's returned those 
the diorama as a whole to a two-dimensional photograph, essentially. And, of course, her photos remind us that photography and the invention of photography was very much about optics and light uh, in the same way that... Um, uh, trompe painting is very much about optics as well. And then finally, I was very much wanting to bring trompe into the 21st century and we have two projection works, one by Daniel Crooks, which is his laneways work and embroidery of voids, which takes us through a series of collaged uh, um, scenes of Melbourne laneways and then a final work by Jess Johnson and her two-dimensional uh, drawings of a, a fictional world have been made three-dimensional through animation. So both of those two projection works are very much 21st century interpretations of trompe l'oeil and both of those artists use the idea of a portal, in the case of Jess, a circular portal and in the case of Daniel, a square format portal. That was, uh, Daniel's work was at uh, Melbourne Now. That's correct. I, I think, yeah, 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 absolutely. It's a beautiful hypnotic piece. Fabulous yeah. work yeah. and so I'm proposing that, 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 that both of these works are contemporary trompe l'oeil uh, and that um, these artists are drawing on some of those traditions of trompe l'oeil painting uh, and indeed they're using this notion of the portal which a lot of historical trompe l'oeil painters used whether that was a doorway, a frame uh, or a window. Yeah. Do you think... Uh, is it still possible to trick modern audiences and modern viewers, given that they're so familiar now with the, the visual trickery, the history of the trompe l'oeil, whether they know it consciously as trompe l'oeil or not? Can you still fool the, the viewer? Do people want to be fooled? Um, I think it's more about the, you know, the, I, I guess the concept of it, at least trying to, to fool the viewer. Um, I, I, probably doubt that you can fully kind of um you know fool the viewer and i think um you know like with mine and colleen's work there's you know it's probably you know there's elements that mate fool but then there's other elements that are clearly you know kind of clearly paintings of something um yeah i i i think it's you know i think it's probably a lot harder now nowadays with you know the advent of kind of cgi and all those kinds of things that but i think it's maybe more around you know that marrying again of you know the the history or the concept of kind of trompe l'oeil and kind of the form it takes on now mm -hmm. yeah. and i think it's also difficult i mean you're walking as a visitor you're walking into a show that is about trompe l'oeil so you know you're walking in with a fair amount of pre-knowledge yeah. so i yeah. think it's going to be fairly difficult to fall yeah but you can still engage um and still delight and that notion of delight is perhaps the one of the underlying aspects regardless of whether it was the original artists fooling people who then perhaps delighted in bringing their friends along to see what their response would be or indeed yeah the contemporary viewer who's going in there um knowing what to expect but still delighting in what they see Mm. And I think in some instances too, I mean, when I think about my interest in this this theme, it came about thinking about the notion that we are a very image-saturated world now. Uh, and so I did wonder whether, you know, can we still be tricked? Are we so visually, you know, acute that we, we, you know, we can't be tricked anymore? But then when I think about a lot of these works, they are about pausing and looking and really slowing down and, and, and seeing what the artist is doing, seeing if you can uncover the trick. And in one particular work, for example, um, Jan Murray is a painter. She's developed a whole new series of, of, of canvases, which events, um, air vents that you might see in a, a building. And indeed, if we look around the studio here, there might be a few that we uh, we could see. But um, she uh, has created these beautiful trompe l'oeil paintings and we've extended the conceit of these to actually install them in unexpected places. And I think the uncanny and the unexpected is a very strong element of trompe l'oeil. So visitors won't obviously know where Jan's 
canvases are placed, we're inviting them to look carefully and slowly and go through the galleries, not just the temporary exhibition galleries, but indeed some of our permanent collection rooms. I'm giving away too many clues, I think. <laughs> um, but um, to, to look. And so this, this invitation is really about inviting people to look and, and question it's a great invitation. So get along, get along to the Geelong Gallery for Tricking the Eye, Contemporary Trompe L'Oeil. It's on from the 26th of November, so uh, from Saturday uh, through until the 12th of February. More information at geelonggallery.org.au if you've not been to the gallery before. It's in Little Mallop Street, Geelong. So uh, whether you're a Geelong local or a Melbourneian looking for something to do over summer, sounds like a fun exhibition to get along to. I've been chatting to the curator, Lisa Sullivan, and to artists Chris Bond and Tully Moore. Thank you all for joining us here at Triple R. Thank you. Thanks, Thank Richard. You. This has been a podcast from 3 Triple R 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.